reading the big picture of the gospel according to Luke. So if you will, again, try to get the picture in your mind of hopping in an airplane and flying several thousand meters above a forest. And in this case, the forest is named Luke. So today we'll be getting the big picture of Luke. Well, if ever a man wrote a book filled with good news, and the good news is for everybody, Luke is that man. In fact, if you probably, uh, the key message for the book of Luke comes from chapter 19. The key message is here on the screen, and it says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Luke presents Jesus Christ as a human being. He's a man. Whereas, you remember, Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark's showing Jesus as a servant. Luke is showing Jesus is a man. In fact, he's just not any man. He is a compassionate, he is the compassionate son of man who came, and he's Emmanuel, which means he's God with us. He lived among sinners. He loved sinners. He helped sinners, and he did die for sinners. Luke wrote his gospel based on his own historical investigations. In fact, if you look uh, at the very beginning of this gospel according to Luke, Luke states his purpose in writing this book. Now, you're not going to find Luke's name, but uh, it's rarely disputed that Luke is the author. Anyway, look at uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been So you notice the primary recipient there is the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, We assume the author is Luke, based on historical facts. People of that time said it was Luke who wrote this book. But it's also written to all believers, particularly Gentiles. That's who Luke is particularly writing to. He is a Gentile, predominantly writing to Gentiles. And so Luke gives evidence of being a very careful researcher. He is an eyewitness. In fact, you'll see Luke's name mentioned in Paul's epistles. Luke was a companion to the Apostle Paul, and of course Paul introduced Luke to the other apostles. Uh, We also see that Luke read other accounts. Uh, As I said last week, Mark was probably the first of the Gospels written, so we can fairly uh, safely assume that he read the gospel according to Mark. He compared stories, he talked to the apostles, compiled and investigated the data. And he, by the way, was in a good position to do that. After all, he was a traveling companion to the apostle Paul. He would have known the apostles and, of course, would have been introduced to the other apostles. You probably get the feeling, if you've ever read the gospel according to Luke, that he was not a Jew. And it's fairly safe to assume that he was not a Jew. You don't see Jewish language like you do in the book of Matthew. So it's fairly safe to assume he's a Gentile. And it also appears that he was a medical doctor. According to Colossians chapter 4, Paul calls him the beloved physician. He probably undertook his investigations sometime in the late 50s to the early 60s. And again, we're not talking the 1950s. This is first century. So he is, he is very close to the time of Christ, an eyewitness, somebody who knows what's going on. The Gospel according to Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And by the way, if you compare that with the book of Acts, because uh, Luke also wrote Acts, it's by far, uh, really, at one, they, they may have been one book at one time. So by far, Luke is writing a huge portion of the New Testament. Let me encourage you to make an effort to read this wonderful book. Uh, Even if you've done it before, uh, let me encourage you to read it. It, it, Try to read it in one sitting. 
Try to read it in one sitting. Don't break it up into little pieces. If you Just make an effort to do so. You'll, you'll be richly blessed by doing that. And it'll only take you about two hours to read it silently. So let me quickly give you a description of Luke's structure of the book. Just quickly fly through the chapters here, and then we'll get into uh, some big picture stuff in a moment. So in chapters uh, 1 through 3... Luke is describing the, the early life of Jesus. It's, it's his birth, his boyhood, and even his baptism, as well as the genealogy. Now, let me encourage you to compare Luke's genealogy to Matthew. You'll see a little different. Uh, one, one of the cool things about Luke's genealogy is, is he takes us all the way back to Adam, the first created human being that God ever made. And then in chapters 4 to 9, it tells us about Jesus' ministry of teaching. And you remember, he spent most of his teaching and healing ministry up in the northern region of Israel, which is called Galilee. And then chapters 10 through 19 really follow this whole journey that Jesus had making his way to Jerusalem. He had set his face. His, His purpose was to go to Jerusalem. He came to die for sinners, to seek and to save the lost. Also talks a lot about his teaching, by the way. He taught the disciples as he was preparing to go to Jerusalem to die. Then in chapters 19 to 21, recounts Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem. Again, he wanted to prepare the disciples for their ministry. Chapter 22 records Jesus' arrest. Jesus was arrested, uh, trumped up false charges. Then chapter 23 describes Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and his burial. And then the last chapter is all about Jesus' resurrection. And then after Jesus arose, the Bible says he ascended to heaven. The Bible says Jesus continues to minister to us in heaven. He's at the Father, at God the Father's right hand. So what was Jesus really like? What was he really like? Well, that's an important question. And it's an important question in part because of the confused state of modern scholarship, especially on Jesus Christ. Some people today present multiple Jesuses to us. If you do any reading, looking at blogs, internet, books, even going to Christian bookstores, it's very easy to get confused. Who is Jesus Christ really? Who who is he? What was he really like? I mean, after all, some present him as a fanatical Jew. Some present him as a cynic philosopher or a healer or some sage or just a, a good teacher. Or uh, Some have described Jesus as an advocate for social justice or he's a, a rationalist or a, a mystic. And then the list could go on and on and on. There's all kinds of ideas of who is Jesus Christ. So my question to you is this, who do you think Jesus is? <laughs> Not who do you think other people think Jesus is, but who do you think Jesus is? What really is the truth about Jesus? Well, to answer that question, it's important that we come to Scripture. Because Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is is complete. Scripture is truthful and accurate. We don't have to guess. All we have to do is read and believe what Scripture says about Jesus. This is a true account. Remember, this is... Someone who was there in the first century. So let's take heed to what this man who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has to say about Jesus. I'm going to use a series of questions and attempt to answer those from the Gospel according to Luke. Number one, and these come from the, uh, a lot of these ideas, these questions come from modern scholarship. But number one, was Jesus a man's man? Was Jesus a man's man? And, you know, if, you've, uh, if you were like me growing up in Sunday school, you probably would have seen a lot of pictures and, and, and even the, the artwork for, from the Middle Ages and artwork in cathedrals and so forth often picture a, a uh, kind of a puny-looking man, right? Slender, uh, soft man, you know, very white skin, blue eyes. You know, you know the picture, you know, a, a man, a very weak man. And it's sad to, to say, as a result of, of that, 
there have been some men who have stopped following Jesus Christ. We're, we're interested in following Jesus Christ because of these false portrayals of Jesus Christ. And some Christians have responded to those images in the last several decades. In fact, uh, I've noticed a change. Uh, as I've read, read uh, the children's books, uh, children's Bibles to my children, it's interesting how the the characterizations of Jesus Christ have changed. Now, a lot of times you'll see he's now a burly man. He's a tough man. He's, he's actually a carpenter, a manly carpenter. <laughs> Picture a guy who could build houses and furniture and so forth. Well, let's see what Luke says about Jesus. And one of the things we see in the Gospel according to Luke is that Jesus had concern for women. Jesus had concern for women. In fact, turn to chapter 8. Uh, we, have, we, we have no time to be exhaustive in this study, so let me encourage you to go back this week and read this wonderful book. But Luke's Gospel shows that Jesus had compassion not just for the men. Of course he had compassion for men. I mean, he gathered 12 of them around him. One of those men he knew would betray him. But... Luke's gospel also shows Jesus had compassion for women. And chapter 8 mentions the crucial ministry of, of, of several women, not just one, but several women who actually contributed to Jesus' work. I want you to see this here in chapter 8, verse 1. Look at, look, put your eyeballs on Scripture, chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of uh, Cuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's just a few of the various women who, who are mentioned in the Gospels. And this is not exhaustive, of course, and it's interesting that in an age when uh, women were basically chattel, women were chattel to be used however men chose to use them, that uh, Jesus should so highly exalt them. Chapter 10 highlights Mary and Martha's friendship with Jesus. You know the story, I hope. I don't need, we're not going to read it. But it's interesting that in that story, again, women are mentioned, what's Mary doing? Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach. Jesus wants her there. Jesus desires for women to be there and listen to his teaching. And, and Martha's all busy doing good things, doing good things, you know, working around the house there. Jesus ends up uh, saying to, to, to Martha and actually invites Martha to come, why don't you come and hear the teaching as well? Sit at my feet. In chapter 13, Jesus saw a crippled woman and had compassion on her. I want, to, I want us to read that one. Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 10. So not only does Jesus have concern for women in general, he even has concern for the outcast women of society, crippled people, disabled people. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Stop there interesting that Luke refers to more women than Matthew, Mark, and John. Now that truth, by the way, reveals something about uh, not just Luke, who, who remember, who was a physician, but it also reveals something about uh, what Jesus believed. What did Jesus think? What, what did Jesus actually consider to be important? Well, obviously he considered all of the sexes to be important, didn't he? Not just the males, but the females as well. So he had concern for women, but 
The Bible also said he had concern for children. Jesus had concern for children. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, look at verse 41. Chapter 8, verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Well, you find out later that Jesus was concerned about this 12-year-old girl. Even though he... He didn't see her, didn't actually go there. He was concerned for this child. I want you to see what Jesus says in chapter 9 about children. Chapter 9. Again, there's many examples we could look at. I've just taken a a, a few selected passages here. Chapter 9, verse 47. The context is the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. (laughs) They they missed it. But look what Jesus says in the midst of their arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who who is great. (laughs) Jesus loved children. He welcomed children to come to him. In another passage, Jesus even rebuked his disciples for keeping the children from coming to him. Now, they probably had good motives. They were probably doing it. They were thinking, you know, that's not bother Jesus. We're going to, you know, we're going to put a shield around Jesus. He's a busy man. But, Jesus rebuked his disciples for keeping the children from him. So as you read the Gospel according to Luke, you'll find that Jesus seems to have a very unusual attitude toward children. Again, children were, were, were not, for the most part, to considered to be a blessing. Uh, they, they often had a very different way of thinking about children at this time period. So Jesus shows that children are to be welcomed, children are a blessing, Children are to be loved, nourished, and cared for. So is Jesus a man's man? Was he a man's man? Well, that may not be the picture of a man's man that you have in your mind. But Jesus was certainly manly. He wasn't carpenter. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, part of that masculinity was expressed in his concern for people who were not at the same level as males in that society. He had a concern for women and for those who were vulnerable in that society. So men, let me ask you this. Men, is your manliness expressed like his? Is your manliness expressed like Jesus' manliness? He was a man. A man of man. (laughs) A man of men. Is your manliness expressed like his? Let me ask you another question. Was Jesus a culture shaper? Some think of Jesus as a culture shaper. Uh, let me, let me uh, kind of word the question in another way. Did Jesus make friends with the wealthy and powerful of his day in order to wield a greater influence? Was his desire to wield some great influence? And if you think this is true, you actually might be surprised to find that Jesus appears to, to, to actually demonstrate a greater concern for the poor than for the rich. Over and over again in the, the book of Luke, that's what we see. In fact, uh, let, me, let me show you some of these. Turn to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we, we clearly see, even from the very first chapter, that Jesus had concern for the poor. Jesus had concern for the poor. In fact, in Mary's opening song of praise... I want you to see what, G, or what Mary sings in her song of praise, chapter 1, verse 53. Chapter 1, verse 53, 
It says this, he was filled with the hungry, or he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Wow. I'm sure there was a lot of people scratching their heads over that. Then, if, if you keep going on in the book of Luke, you'll find that after Jesus grows up, the Bible says he actually returns to his home synagogue. And the Bible says he actually takes the Isaiah scroll, and he stands up, he reads, he taught uh, in chapter 4, verse 18, that the Messiah would preach good news to the poor. Whoa. In chapter 12... Chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples this in verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then when he was talking to a Pharisee who was hosting a, a, a feast in his house, he said, Invite the poor. Now I want you to look in chapter 21. I'm not going to read. The, you, we're going to look at this together. Chapter 21. I want you to see what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's interesting that Jesus here did not condemn this poor widow. We were, these kind of people were often considered outcasts of society. In fact, Jesus actually commended her for her devotion to God. She didn't have as much as those wealthy people, but she did what she could. And so Jesus commends her. So not only did Jesus have concern for the poor, but Jesus actually goes and actually issues warnings to the wealthy people of his day, and which would, of course, carry on to our day. It's interesting, if you, if you look um, at chapter 6, you'll find, rather, look, turn over to chapter 6, rather than teaching his disciples how to identify and enlist wealthy backers for, for, uh, for his movement, so to speak, I want you to see what Jesus does, because a lot, a lot of uh, particularly parachurch organizations and churches themselves love to try to get the wealthy people on board. We, we want to enlist wealthy backers because they're the ones who are going to cause our ministry to go forward and to thrive. Well, let's, let's see what Jesus says to his disciples here. Chapter 6, verse 24. Chapter 6, verse 20, he says, to, verse 24, Jesus says this, But woe to you! Who are rich, for you have received your consolation. I want you to turn over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, look what Jesus says to a man who is worried about his inheritance. Look what Jesus says to this man who is worried about his inheritance. Chapter 12, verse 15. Verse 15, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, life is not about your possessions. It's not about seeking great abundance. Now look at verse 33. Look what Jesus says here. Verse 33. Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, for where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then perhaps the most shocking story about wealth is considered, or, or is, is actually found in that story about the rich young ruler. A young man who is rich, who was also a ruler in that society. And this man apparently is a seeker because he comes to Jesus. He asks a great question. He said, hey, what, what, what does one need to do to inherit eternal life? Great question. He's coming to the right person. Well, maybe the question could have been worded better, but he, he's obviously concerned about eternal life. 
So he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responded with evidences of repentance and belief in God. Now remember, in his question, he's asking, what can I do? But Jesus doesn't, you know, Jesus is responding with, hey, here, here's evidence of grace in someone's life. And basically, he gives that rich ruler the Ten Commandments. He gives him the Ten Commandments. He said, have you, you know, have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you committed adultery? Have you ever borne false witness? Do you covet? You know, so forth. He's given the Ten Commandments to him. And I want you to look at the response here in chapter 18. Look at the rich young ruler's response, and then Jesus' response. Chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 21. Here's the rich young ruler's response. He says in verse 21, he said, All these, these these commandments, the Ten Commandments, I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Well, the rich ruler could not do that. It's sad because the Bible says he walks away. He could not do what Jesus tells him to do here. He turns away and he refused to be uh, uh, to be to, to go with Jesus because his wealth. He was, in other words, he's worshiping himself. He was more important than Jesus. He has a love problem here, doesn't he? And I want you to see how Jesus concludes this conversation in verse 24. Verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So, My friends, you need to realize something about Jesus. Okay, Jesus is not a communist. Okay, Jesus is not about the, the, the redistribution of wealth and supposedly everybody being equal. No, that's not Jesus. But Jesus was a spiritual realist. A spiritual realist. He, in other words, he, he knew that good things become distorted and deceptive in this fallen world. Yes, even good things can become distorted and deceptive in this fallen world. One of the things you'll find out about possessions and things of this world is is they'll promise you something. Just watch TV ads, look at newspaper ads, magazine ads. Just watch the funny stuff. You get those funny magazines in your letterbox. Those are hilarious. The advertise, some, Somebody who does the advertising and that sort of stuff, some of them are very creative, I must say. But they allure us with promises of fulfillment that they cannot fulfill. They can't fulfill those things. But they try anyway. And that's the way it is in this fallen world. Even good things will do that. But Jesus was a spiritual realist, and he's, he's letting us know what reality is. Wealth is deceptive. It does not satisfy. In fact, it's, it's actually dangerous, incredibly dangerous, because as Jesus says here in verse 24, it's actually difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God because they tend to love themselves more than they love God. Let me ask you another question. Listen closely. Was Jesus the popular guy? Was Jesus the popular guy? Is that how you tend to think about him? Was he the guy that everybody wants to be with? Was he the life of the party? Is that how you or someone else you know tends to think about him? Some Christians think that the way to influence the culture is, hey, you've got to go for its leaders. Go for the popular guys. Go for the, the icons of society. And if you get the popular people, then you can get all of society. That's what some people think. Hey, you've got to get the shapers of public opinion on your side and, and the heroes of our society. If we can get our heroes, then society, they're going to just flock to Christ. We've got to get those who are admired by the world. If we can get them on our team, well, hey, then, then they'll join our team. 
And some people think, you know, hey, if we can just get, get those heroes on our team, you know, somebody who maybe, for example, who plays for the All Blacks, if we can get a, a great rugby player on our team, maybe one day he'll score a try in the, in the Rugby World Cup and win the World Cup again for New Zealand, and maybe he'll actually kneel down after he scores that try and say a prayer to God and, and point up to heaven, and 100,000 people will be converted to Christ. You say, that's silly. Well, I agree. I think that's silly. But there are a lot of Christians who think that way, sadly. Let's see what Luke says about Jesus concerning this question. Luke actually says Jesus was concerned for the disreputable. Those who were on the outside of society, Jesus was more concerned for them than he was for the leaders and the popular, the admired, the heroes of his day. In fact, the Bible says he spent most of his time with people who were not well regarded in his society. In other words, what I'm saying is this, Jesus surrounded himself, and the Bible even says this, he surrounded himself with sinners and tax collectors. Whoa. (laughs) Look at chapter 15. This is pretty radical. If you know anything about Jesus' day, this is radical. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, no. That was like heresy. That was, that was horrible for these Pharisees who would, and, and these scribes who would never consider doing that. By the way, this is not a one-off. <laughs> this is not a one-off. In other words, this isn't the only time you see Jesus doing this sort of thing. It was actually Jesus' pattern of life. He's constantly with sinners and tax collectors. He kept company with the outcast of society. And I want you to see another example. Look at chapter 18. Look at chapter 18. Have any of you ever seen a beggar on the street? How how about a disabled beggar? You ever seen one on the streets somewhere? Have you ever gone up and sat down next to them and actually showed some concern for them? Give them some money? Help them out? You ever done that? Look what Jesus does here. Matthew, or not Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. And as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, Let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So so again, we, we could look at many examples where Jesus had great concern for the disreputable, the outcast of society. Someone, you know, everybody else is saying, hey, hey, dude, shut up. Leave Jesus alone. That's typically how beggars would have been treated. Probably worse than they are treated in our own society. But Jesus had great concern even for blind beggars. So here's my next question for you. Number four, was Jesus a nationalist? Well, if he's not any of those other things, how about a nationalist? Somebody who is... You know, you see the word nation in the word nationalist. Is he someone who's, who's one of these fanatical Jews, these fanatical Israelis? Was he a Hebrew of the Hebrews? 
Well, one way to begin a religious movement is you go and you appeal to common boundaries, to, to, to things in common with people and to people's prejudices. And if you can, can kind of you know, find some common ground, you, you can tend to build a movement that way. A lot of people have done that through the centuries. But is that what Jesus did? Well, Luke says Jesus was concerned for not just the nation of Israel. Interestingly enough, a Gentile, writing to Gentiles, says Jesus is concerned for all nations. Jesus affirmed God's special concern for Israel, of course. But he also clarified Israel's purpose. Never forget this, my friends. Jesus and, and his concern matched up what the Old Testament says, that the Jews, the Hebrews, Israel was to be a light to the nations, plural. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Now, I say that because Sabbath was something uh, significant to the Jews. And, and in, look at chapter 13. In chapter 13 there, uh, it talks all about this, this, this incident Jesus has with religious leaders of his day. And, and the Sabbath stands in for really the whole picture of Jewish identity. There are several things that identified someone who was a Jew, someone who was of the nation of Israel, and the Sabbath was one of those. Look what Jesus, look what the Bible says here in chapter 13, verse 10. Verse 10. Now he, that's Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger, and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. My friends, you need to understand that God intended for Israel to be a means for reaching the entire world. It, it was that way from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? Abrahamic covenant says that in Abraham, through Abraham, his descendants, his line, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just Israel. God intended for Israel to be a means for reaching the whole world. But, but the, sadly, the Pharisees treated Israel as if they were an end in themselves, as if the gospel should stop with them. And what they did is they bound up the people with unnecessary regulations. Fortunately, not all were like the Pharisees. Not everyone was like them. Other Israelites anticipated the consolation of Israel. And that's what, by the way, that's what Luke calls Jesus, the consolation of Israel. I want to look at just a couple examples. Turn to chapter 2. Fortunately, not everybody did and thought like the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at chapter 2. Here we have the example of a man named Simeon. Simeon was a believer in Jesus Christ. He understood what the Old Testament said about the promised Messiah. He was looking, he was waiting, and when he saw him, he knew exactly what he saw. He saw his Savior. Look, what's, look what the Bible says about Simeon. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Verse 30, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of Israel, right? Is that what it says? Are you looking at your Bible? If you're looking, you know it doesn't say Israel there. 
What does it say? It says, all peoples. Simeon understood this truth. It's for all peoples. Now look at verse 32. Jesus is a light for a revelation to the... Does it say Israel there? No, it says the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon understood this truth. It wasn't just Israel. It was all people groups, all nations of the world. Well, Simeon's not alone, fortunately. Look over chapter 3. I'll give you another example. Look at chapter 3. John the Baptist also understood this truth, that Jesus was not a nationalist. Jesus was for all nations. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and Israel shall see the salvation of God. Is that what John the Baptist said? Now, I'm purposely highlighting this so you get the point, all right? The Bible says there in verse 6, All flesh, all nations of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Jesus was not a nationalist. (laughs) Of course he was a Jew. But he was for all nations. Let me ask you one more question here. Was Jesus a manager Was he just some manager? Was Jesus a religious organizer of some sort who was was wrapped up in his own organization? Was he all about promoting, promoting his ministry and building his kingdom? Luke says Jesus was actually concerned for the lost souls of humanity. The Bible says Jesus knew that people were lost... And, and, the, and he actually taught about this coming judgment that they needed to know and, and be concerned about. For example, Jesus said in uh, chapter 10, look, look in chapter 10, Jesus says here that, that judgment would come upon entire cities. The whole generations would be judged for rejecting his words. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says, It will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum. Remember, by the way, that's Jesus spent a lot of his ministry around Capernaum, in Capernaum and around that area. And Jesus says, You, Capernaum, will, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Well, we've heard some bad news, haven't we? We've heard some bad news. So let me give you some good news. Here's some good news. Look, look at chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verse 47. I want to end with some good news for you, okay? We're almost done. Hang with me here. All right, chapter 1, verse 47 gives us some good news. And, and remember, this is Mary's song of praise, often called the Magnificent. Look what Mary says in chapter 1, verse 47. She says that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Unlike a particular religion of our day believes, Mary understood that Jesus was her Savior. She needed Jesus. That's good news. Jesus is our Savior. Look how Zechariah praised God in verse 71. Look at verse 71. Here's what Zechariah in his prophecy says about Jesus. He says in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, we see what the angels proclaim to these outcasts of society called shepherds. 
look at chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, notice the next two words, a Savior. Who is the Savior? Who is Christ the Lord. Again, Simeon recognized this truth. Look at verse 30. Simeon recognizes in verse 30, for he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Now remember, when he said, when he said that, who is he looking at? He's looking at baby Jesus. He's looking at Jesus and he says, My eyes have seen my salvation. That's Jesus. Let me ask you this, my friends. How did Jesus bring this salvation? How did Jesus bring this salvation? Well, if you read the end of the story, you find that Jesus suffered. Jesus died. He didn't stay dead. He arose. In the process, He conquered death. He paid the penalty for sin, which is, the, which is, is death. He destroyed the works of Satan. I want you to see what Jesus told His disciples at the Last Supper. Look at chapter 22. Chapter 22. This is so cool. You need to understand something. Hopefully you've got cross-references in your Bible. Jesus is actually going to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And he's actually going to quote from chapter 53. Hopefully you know all about chapter 53. It's all about the suffering servant, who of course is Jesus the one who was crushed by God the Father for our sin. And, and he actually quotes from that passage here. So look at chapter 22, verse 15. Chapter 22, verse 15. And he said to them, his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knew he was going to suffer. He was going to die. Look what he says in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is talking about his body, his blood, his suffering here in the midst of this Last Supper with his disciples. And I don't know, you may not have caught on to this yet, but look, look what Jesus says in verse 37. Look what he says in verse 37. This is awesome. Look at verse 30, because this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verse 50, 37. He says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now look at that little phrase right in the middle of verse 37. That's a quote from the, the suffering servant's uh, uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says, that's about me. And he's quoting Isaiah 53 when he says that. So my friends, question for you. How are you responding to Jesus? Now notice, I didn't say, how did you respond to Jesus at some time in the past? How are you responding him to him now, today, this week? Well, there's at least two ways you can respond to Jesus. Turn over to chapter 18, and I want to finish with these verses, okay? Chapter 18 has two individuals, okay? You understand you're an individual, just like these individuals. There's at least two ways you can respond to King Jesus. One of the individuals here in our story responds in a good way, in the right way, Another individual in chapter 18 here responds in a bad way, the wrong way. So, look at chapter 18, put your eyeballs in Scripture, and ask this question, how are you responding to Jesus? Which one are you? You can't be both. 
Not, not at this moment, anyway. So which one are you? Look at chapter 18, verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. Rather than the other, that Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So which one are you? How are you responding to Jesus today? How are you responding to Jesus? Are are you that one there that is seeking to exalt themselves? Are you seeking to exalt yourself? Are you... Do you love yourself too much? Worshiping yourself? If you are in the process, you're breaking the greatest commandment, which is to love God with everything. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, your entire being. Are you exalting yourself? If you are, you're in the wrong place. In fact, you're in an incredibly dangerous place. You are self-righteous, my friend. Jesus says you're in danger of hell fire. I hope that you will pray for humility. That's where we need to be. We need to be like the, the lowly outcast of society, the, the traitors of Israel, these tax collectors, the ones who can't even lift up their eyes because they know just how bad they are. They know they're sinners. So that's where we need to be. Those are the ones whom God says, I will lift up. I will exalt you. So do you see the difference? If you try to exalt yourself, God's going to push you down. He's going to humble you. But if you're humble, God says he will exalt you. He will lift you up. How much better it is to be humble instead of proud and have God be the one who blesses us and lifts us up. So how are you responding to Jesus today? Which one are you? Which individual are you? My friend, the good news is there is always hope with Jesus. No matter what our issue is, our sin problem, which of course is our greatest problem, there's always hope. And he's longing and waiting for us to return to him. If we've gone away from him, we can come back to him. Let us pray for those of us who strive to be humble. (laughs) Uh, None of us are perfect, of course. But if it's your general direction of life to be humble, continue to pray for God to, to minister that evidence of grace in your life so that he would exalt us one day.